Welcome to Switchblade Sisters, where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. I'm April Wolf, recording from my home office with potentially a special guest appearance from my cat Chicken, or maybe the film crew next door with the generator running. Every week, I invite a new female filmmaker on, a writer, director, actor, or producer, and we talk in depth about one of their favorite genre films, perhaps one that has influenced their own work in some small way. Today, I'm very excited to have writer-director Zaina Dura here with me. Hi, Zaina! Hello, thank you for having me. Uh, and I should say, you're not here with me. You are in London, I believe. I am, sadly. Mm, time change. Um, <laughs> she's she's very tired, been doing a lot of press, but she's hanging in there, and we're very happy to have her with us. Um, for those of you who need a refresher on Zena's career and biography, please let me uh, fill you in. Zena is a British director of Middle Eastern and Bosnian descent. She received her BA in Oriental Studies from Oxford University and an MFA from NYU's Tisch School of the Arts graduate film program, where she completed the short film Seventh Dog. But it wasn't until 2010 when she would make her feature directorial debut with The Imperialists Are Still Alive, a sometimes moving, sometimes funny portrait of Mohemian Manhattan emigre who navigates a, comp- a complex life and an, of an artist inclined to assimilate, but constantly reminds she is different. The film premiered in the U.S. Dramatic Competition at the 2010 Sundance Film Festival and the Warsaw Film Festival and uh, gave it an award for Best First or Second Feature. Now, 10 years after Triumphs and Setbacks, Zena returns with her sophomore feature, Luxor, starring Andrea Riseborough as a British aid worker who returns to Luxor and meets an old lover, which sparks an excavation of her past and what her future may be. Produced by Mohamed Hefsi and Paul Webster, the film premiered at Sundance's 2020's uh, World Dramatic Competition. And Zaina resides in London, England, as I said before, with her children and husband. And she's uh, working on, we hope, a slew of uh, other projects to come. Yeah, and now I'm back. I'm, I'm not I'm not giving birth anymore. So I'm just going to give <laughs> birth done. to movies. I'm done. I'm giving birth to movies. <laughs> I mean, that was, um, that was kind of, I keep on beating myself up that I didn't make a film for like eight years. But everyone's like, Zaina, you had three children in that time and moved country. So I wrote a lot of scripts. So hopefully those are the ones that are going to now be knocked out. It's going to be a landslide. It's going to be an <laughs> avalanche of shit to come. There so you I wouldn't go. worry about it. Exactly. But Zaina, um, you know, speaking of avalanches and very slow moving things, um, the movie that you chose to talk about today is The Passenger. <laughs> so can you give us a little explanation on why this is one of your fave genre films? I can just watch that film endlessly. And there's just something so beautiful on so many levels. Partly, um, obviously, the way it's shot, the story. You know, I'm the daughter of a a journalist um, from that era. And um, I I love the, the, on so many levels, the idea of like, the complicity of whether a journalist is complicit or not, the whole gun running mm-hmm. aspect that we were just talking about, the the idea of um, I love the idea that there's like when I every time I watch there's something new. But for example, the fact that there were no mobile phones that you had to use these like pay phones and like go around. It's just such a it's such a reminder of that era that I grew up. You know, I was born in '76, so uh, and the film came out in '75. So I feel like my early years were still in that kind of world, especially having mm-hmm. this journalist dad. You know, and so all those kind of characters that you see and also his house in London, the street is literally my best friend's street growing up. So there's just all these like little moments in the film, which I feel it's quite personal to, to me. And then, yeah. and then it's just really about um, the beauty of telling a story very silently 
through, there's humor, there's the huge philosophical questions about how we live and what we live and what is right and what is wrong. All these things are brought up. And, um, you know, um, Maria Schneider, she is a really interesting female protagonist because she's not just like a hot babe. She's actually, I just find like her, her wardrobe choice is really interesting, the way that she, and it really influenced how we did um, um, Hannah in, in Luxor. Her wardrobe choices were mm-hmm. really influenced by that. Um, and uh, in the idea of this kind of like intellectual, kind of she's a student of architecture. I really like that because you don't really see that in films. I mean, even today, barely do you see like, you know, club smart women. I mean, she's, they meet because she's into Gaudi, you know? And I, yeah. I, 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 lo- I think intrinsically, I'm just drawn to so many, there's so many things I can relate to in the film. It's so mesmerizing the first few minutes of that film that I have a video, which I will show you afterwards, of my children, when I just had two children, not three, it was my two girls aged four and two sitting mesmerized by the first, I mean, they sat throughout the entire movie, by the way, and, and I fast forwarded the violent oh, parts. Wow. But they were like, mommy, what is this? What is this? And they just kept on looking and they were trying to understand the clues and they they loved it. And, you know, sadly then someone got them into Disney or whatever. And, you know, it's it's been a battle ever <laughs> since. But the, the Disney's like the heroine of uh, children's movies. I mean, it's like, oh, give me another hit, mom. Yeah, exactly. My kids were really into like Visconti and like they were like, oh, and they were really into like sitting with me and watching movies. And suddenly there's like, you know, suddenly like all these Disney things. And I'm like, where did you hear about that? Like, oh, from nursery, you know, and like, oh, God. So, um, but yeah, so it just goes to show how powerful those images are. And I was really fascinated that literally my two-year-old daughter was sitting there and I have the video with her eyes just like this, just staring, like, what am I watching? And it's it's because it's poetry, you know, just the, and I go on about this, the, the color, you know, at the beginning, the colors, his shirt, the sky, the color of the Jeep, the blue um, mm-hmm. teapot, like all these things just, it's just a, a serious piece of art, but it's not pretentious. It's it's art within what it's within the the within the scene, you know. I, I, I what I cannot stand is when directors get all like, oh, I'm so arty, and then they do these like ridiculously OTC. I'm not going to mention any names because that's mean. Because making films is hard, <laughs> and I'm not going to be check like out a, her l- newsletter later on. She'll tell you all the names. <laughs> totally, no. I mean, I'm not going to be a bitchy, but you know, there's all these people that go around, and then the amazing thing is they're lauded for being wonderful. And I'm like, my God, they're just so pretentious. This is ridiculous. Yeah, there's okay. The things that you just brought up are all things that we're going to return to. Okay. Like I'm looking at my notes and I'm like, okay, that, 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 that's uh, we've, so we're, we're definitely going to hit up all of that. But for those of you who haven't seen the passenger today's episode, we'll give you some spoilers, but that shouldn't stop you before listening, listening before you watch as always. My motto is that it's not what happens, but how it happens that makes a movie, movie worth watching. And in this case, it's very much so how it happens. Um, still, if you would like to pause and watch the passenger first, this is your shot. And now that you're back, let me introduce the passenger with what I hope is a quick synopsis. There's a lot more that happens here than what I remembered the first time. Written by Mark Peplo, Michelangelo Antonioni, and Peter Wallen, and directed by Antonioni for release in 1975, The Passenger stars Jack Nicholson as documentary journalist David Locke. We meet him as he tries to find a war in the desert. I'm putting some material together, pieces of film for a documentary on Africa. I'm finished now, thank God, or almost finished. Well, what more do you need? I'd like to make contact with the guerrillas. Everybody knows they're fighting up here now. They just arrested some foreigners. I suppose you heard about it. Yes. Anyway, I must have taken the wrong trail. 
There aren't very many around here. And fails and then returns to his hotel room very frustrated to find his neighbor Robertson has died from a heart attack. The gentleman in number 11, he's dead. Locke decides right there to take the man's identity, replacing his passport photo with Robertson's. The men are similar enough for it to work quite easily, but Locke takes Robertson's appointment book as well, intending to meet people as him. And his first meeting brings him to some people arming rebels. Did you manage to get everything we wanted? Have you got the papers? The papers? Oh, yes. You better take a look at them and let me know what you think. Robertson was a gunrunner, apparently. So Locke makes the sale and earns some cash. Meanwhile, Locke's wife, who had moved on to another lover already, hears the news of Locke's death. But she asks a friend to track down this Robertson man who was with Locke at the time of his death. They asked if I knew someone called Robertson. Evidently, he stayed at the same hotel as David did. Can you find him? Possibly. I'd like to talk to him. Locke ends up running into that friend and is able to avoid him where he sees a nameless architecture student played by Maria Schneider, whom he'd seen in a different city days before. Locke asks the woman to retrieve his bag so he can evade his friend. So you want me to get the jewels and secret documents? <laughs> yes. I'll give you uh, the keys to the car, my passport, and a thousand pesetas. I don't know who else to ask. But the woman also has to evade the friend, and then they have to escape together to another city, where Locke then confesses that he stole a dead man's identity. There was an accident. Everyone thought I was dead. I let them think so. Locke keeps getting, uh, keeps making Robertson's appointments while his wife gets his passport and then realizes that Locke isn't actually dead, Robertson is. So his wife and the Spanish police then go on to try to track down Locke, and he feels more and more like some kind of end is coming for him, especially when these uh, dangerous people who may be looking for Robertson show up. The woman travels with him, but Locke tells her to meet him in Tangier. There's a boat leaving from Almeria to Tangiers. Listen, you can't be like that, just escaping. But the thing is that she just doesn't give up on him. That's not in her nature. They get a room in Osuna, and he finally convinces the woman it would be safer for her to leave for a little while. Then the rebels looking for Robertson get to Locke and assassinate him off screen. His wife says she, quote, never knew him. Did you recognize him? I never knew him. And the woman tells police that this is Robertson. So it looks like uh, he did become Robertson in the end after all. So that's the end of the story. I, it's not at all, like I do not remember the plot whatsoever as we were talking about before this. It's um, incidental in many cases. Um, I want to get into um, the the idea that Jack Nicholson was talking about uh, about slower paces when he was discussing Antonioni's process. He said, quote, the thing about this approach to filming is it's exactly the opposite of the 25-year cycle of melodrama we've been in, where the audience is stimulated and it's almost video games oriented. This kind of pace, to me, is still fascinating. He is not melodramatic. He likes to observe in the simplest form. Let the time pass. You see things rather than hear them. All the space, so few people, end quote. Um, and I think it really encapsulates this way of working that he has of allowing a scene to unfold and, and, you know, really just almost letting the actors dictate the pacing in some ways. Well, I think what's interesting is I heard from my DP, because when I was looking at the footage, I'm like, oh my God, look at this color. She's like, Zena, 
he would he would go in and he painted that entire town you know like don't think like he just like we're doing showed up and then with one hour you know did it so I don't know if the actors dictated because he he was such a he was so fastidious but I think he allowed them deliberately the time to breathe within specific spaces which mm-hmm. created this story so for example it's really funny you did that because I realized that that's what attracted me so much to the film because that's how Luxor was made. It was very much an actress, Hannah, walking through, or uh, Andrea Riseborough, but obviously Hannah, um, a character walking through these um, ancient sites and the space that I gave her and the, and the, and the slowness of the camera movement slowly built up this pace of the film you see. Mm-hmm. And it, it was very hard to find an editor that I liked because my editor from New York, who did my first movie, couldn't come to London because he had a family issue. We also didn't have any money to really fly many people in. We were editing the film from the top floor of my house mm-hmm. um, because I just realized it was so much easier with all the stuff going on with the kids and, and like the fact that like I wanted to like, walk, walk, you know, pull all nighters and stuff and we didn't have much time to edit and luckily this wonderful woman called Andrea Cignoli who's just a phenomenal editor and a professor so she's very intellectual and you can really talk about the semantics and really break break down for the film um she she was at Columbia when I was at NYU and so we were kind of part of the whole like New York kind of you know thing and Mm -hmm. everyone's like you're gonna love her and she came from chile for 21 days i think and we just worked like straight um to so i edited so i had this like young guy come someone recommended him didn't work out with him and then after like a couple of weeks i then took over the film edited it on my own with an assistant editor and then it took me about a month to find andrea andrea came and the whole point of this to deal with pace is that it is so hard to find an editor that understands that. You really need an editor who understands the many languages of the film and how old and how proper films are made, you know? Yeah. And because it was very painful for me, painful for me trying to communicate this to other editors because I also edit, but you know, you have to kind of let go and edit with someone when it's your own film, I think, because I had been editing it on my own for about six weeks and I just, oh no, not even three weeks and I was like okay I need I need someone to come in with me so I can have these conversations and so I love the fact that Andrea was a woman and a professor and that was wonderful because it really you could sit there and have these really fun full-on like you know almost like you're like in a cafe you know like kind of conversations not that I do that anymore but that kind of like you it was like these kind of useful conversations that you would have about how to make a film and it's so key because that art is really being lost and all these directors that come out now that are, are lauded as really brilliant, I mean, I'm sure there's so much good stuff, but at the same time, I really think that, I just don't think that that, that making films is the same anymore. I don't want to sound like a grandma, but... No, but I, I think there's there's something to that. But uh, We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk a lot more Luxor and a lot more The Passenger. We'll be right back. Hey. 
Hey, it's your host, April Wolf, here to talk to you about how great it is to work from home once you get used to it. Um, You know, there's uh, a a lot of naps involved, there's a lot of uh, kitten cuddling, and also uh, maybe a few downsides, though. I will acknowledge that. One of them is the fact that uh, if you live in a small apartment like I do, the litter boxes maybe not so pleasant, maybe not so fresh, something that you're not so used to having in an office. Um, But there is also a solution for this. Um, Would you like to hear it? Because every month, Kitty Poo Club will deliver an affordable, high-quality, recyclable litter box that's pre-filled with the litter of your choice. If you know, you want a little bit of uh, ease in your life. The boxes are leak-proof, eco-friendly, and they have a fun design for every season. Um, When the month is up, just recycle the box and Kitty Poo Club will automatically deliver a new one to you. No changing used litter and no more cleaning the box. And um, if you're like me and... um, you know, you have terrible knees and you just don't want to do it, uh, it's it's actually pretty, pretty convenient. And right now you can support our show when you subscribe. Kitty Poo Club is offering you 20% off your first order when you set up auto ship by going to kittypooclub.com and entering the promo code SWITCHBLADE. And just go to kittypooclub.com and enter promo code SWITCHBLADE to get 20% off when you set up auto ship. Again, that's kittypooclub.com. And don't forget to enter that promo code. What was that promo code, chicken? That's right. That's right. It's Switchblade. Enter that at the checkout. Does our podcast deep dive into the weirdest Wikipedia pages we can find? Yes. Do we learn about scam artists, remote islands, horrible mascots, beautiful diseases, and mythical monsters? Yes, 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 absolutely, and yes. Do we retain any of this knowledge? Eh, Probably not. I'm Emily Heller. I'm Lisa Hannawalt. We make art and comedy and TV shows and also the podcast Baby Geniuses. For the past eight years, we've been trying to learn new things about the world and each other every episode. But let's be honest, this podcast is mostly about two friends hanging out, shooting the breeze, and making each other laugh. We're horny, we like gardening, and horses and we get real stupid on here but like in a smart way yeah join us every other week on maximum fun Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm joined today by Zayna Dura, and we are talking about The Passenger. Um, something that Zayna was bringing up was just the um, the idea that you can watch this without any sound on, and you can still see or feel what's happening enough in the story to grasp what the characters are doing or how they're feeling. And, you know, that's something that Jack Nicholson was saying in the commentary um, when he was talking about the opening sequence, which you brought up earlier as well. The opening sequence is just, it's gorgeous. It's its own short film and and of itself. Um, But he said, quote, he comes into the store. Nobody speaks or reacts much. He uses the exchange of a cigarette as the international symbol of contact with someone, just a gesture, and everyone knows what it is. He lights the cigarette and leaves, and the guy doesn't even say follow, end quote. He just knows that he needs to follow. There's there's nothing, there's no words exchanged, and there really is no, um, there's not much talking uh, for many minutes into the film. Um, And and I I find that... um, so different from so much of filmmaking today. And you feel so relieved, right? You feel mm -hmm. like it's a release. It's like your brain is being allowed to breathe, you know? But how much, I mean, I think that's something, you know, I brought this up before where sometimes, you know, when you're working with actors and you're making films, there's a sense that like maybe actors look at how many lines they get. 
um, or something. Like I've I've heard some actors say that like the first one is just like, oh, how big is the part? How many lines are there? Um, where we're kind of equating dialogue with um, the with character and w- with importance. And this is you know saying pretty much exactly the opposite. The, the entirety of this movie is saying the opposite well i mean andrea definitely did not get this part because of the lines <laughs> because in Luxor, i mean literally the script was even because i had it was funny i i'm very wordy and i'm a bit of a joker and this film came from a very very sad place so i had to be um i thought how am i going to build this up and i built it up in the rhythm of how i wrote the film so it was like i don't know if you've traveled on your own but when you travel on your own somewhere you're very much aware of just like the sound of your clothes walking across the lobby of the hotel, especially if you're somewhere like India or Kathmandu or whatever, or of the youth hostel, wherever you are, you can hear the sounds of your clothes. And then you go here, you go down the steps, you get into a taxi. You're very in your present because you're not traveling with anyone else and you're in a new place. So it's all sort of very, um, mm-hmm. you're kind of not hyper alert in a negative way but you're sort of really awake and taking it all in and so as a result the way that I wrote the script was like literally she gets out of bed she puts on her shoes she walks she opens the door she walks down the door the hallway she goes and you're like reading you're like what and then after a while you get lulled into this um world and Andrew thought the script was really beautiful which I was really happy about because I thought, God, it's really going to take someone very clever to get this script, you know, be- yeah. because it's it's very nuanced. But I think because we built up the rhythm that then we didn't have, we shot it all. But then actually what's amazing is that you don't need every micro moment. When you're staying with the person for that amount of time, somehow – so what I learned on this film is that there's a difference between slowness and including something – of a slower pace in the movie, right? If mm-hmm. I was going to be slow, I would have just like not cut earlier in some things. It's really hard. It's like a, like a poem. It's like, do you take out this word? Do you put this comma in? It's very much you have to feel it, which is why the editor is so important because if you have these strong opinions, you need someone who's on your same, you, know, you need someone that gets the mm-hmm. poem, right? Yeah. But then notice sometimes he just does like a, a back and forth classic, you know, um, conversation between them you know it's not all these shots which he mixes it up which is what's so interesting he has these pans that go to another pan that go to these wide architectural spaces but then he also just has them in a cafe talking and you're cutting between them talking another thing that i really love in the film which i think is really important is the international aspect of it which i don't know if that's because when i was growing up my parents were very much that kind of 70s international kind of journalist vibe, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that's why energetically I'm so drawn to the film. The fact that it is shot in the area, I, his house in London is in the area I grew up in. And that, you know, you've got him in London, then he goes to Barcelona, and then he's in Africa beforehand. I think that there's something very, um, I haven't seen a film from that era. I feel like it's almost anthropological in the way that it captures captures London you know, and that era of, of mm-hmm. inter- that intellectual era of the journalist, you know, and, um, you know, obviously it was inspired, I think after, his, wasn't it after his documentary he'd made in, um, I could be wrong, but I think it's because he made, he went and made a documentary in, was it China? I think, I think China or something that had made him feel like he was complicit in something. And that's why 
you have those themes. Yeah. And the, um, uh, the thing about those two is Peplo, one of the reasons why he felt comfortable having Antonioni ba- basically take the reins on this is because he, you know, Antonioni, even even though he was doing these things like painting the oranges orange, you know, to like get the right color, he was kind of a documentary filmmaker. The way that he approached things, the kind of like um, smaller crews sometimes that he would employ, like there, there was a different, there was a kind of documentary likeness the, the to his work. The crew size is very important. I'm glad you brought that up because because I um, I love working with a smaller crew, and I find the more people on the set, the slower it is, and the yeah. less poetic it is in a way because you have to deal with all the like so much energy goes into handling like all these people, whereas when you're a smaller set, you're lighter. It's just a lighter footprint energetically. You know, you're not like, oh, there's 50 trucks. And no, 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 you're just kind of there with like some small vans around the corner. And you're, and I, I love that that's how we made Luxor. When my DP, who's an old friend of mine, came on board, she kept on talking about shards of light. And I was like, listen, it's such a complex film on so many levels, on the political, on the feminine, on the spiritual, on the, you, on the romantic, on everything, on the PTSD, your pathic. You need, we need to have, None of the shards and all that crap. We need diffused light, soft, diffused light. And that's what we're going for. And she was like, okay. Um, we looked outside and it was like kind of like really bright all the time. <laughs> and it was like, <laughs> great. That's going to be so easy with like five minutes a day to shoot a, a scene. And But what she did was she she worked. She The one guy that we brought was a guy, her gaffer from New York. She's also, she also went to NYU grad film. And I know her from before, from my undergrad um, degree. And we weren't at NYU at the same time. She came after me, but, you know, we were, we were very old friends. And um, she's wonderful because she's very, uh, di- she's, she doesn't have an ego. She just wants to get you the film the way you want it, which for me as a very visual director is really mm-hmm. what I need. I don't need someone who, how do I say this? Like, uh, sometimes you feel like you're working with someone that kind of wishes they were directing. So they're always trying to constantly take over what you're doing. And yeah. especially when you're a woman. Okay. And, yeah. um, I like, I, I, both films I've had female DPs. I'm not saying guys, if anyone's listening that like a, a male DP could not be wonderful, maybe one day, but, but right now the way I'm working, I don't want to, I don't want to discriminate, but right now the way I'm working is, um, I love working with women because it's just, it's just easier. I, I don't really have any of those clashes, you know? And, yeah. um, and I think what's, you know, I also frame everything. And apparently, which I'm horrified by, some DPs have an issue with, with directors that frame the shots. But I'm like, what is a director supposed to do if they don't frame the shot and choose the lens? Very odd, right? But apparently that they get offended. So, and, but, and, and, um, and so, and at first, even in interviews, they might be like, yeah, 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 I love the idea of, you know, a director that frames and does it all like that. But then, you know, after like the fifth shot, they're like getting stressed out that you're just, you know, saying, hey, can we go, you know, discussing the lens with them, I'd like to go with this and this. They get stressed out because yeah. you're just leaving it to them. So what I loved about her was that she's very much respectful. She tries to get into my head and she did a wonderful job. And literally she listened and she tried to get what I wanted. And, you know, um, she she never got upset. She never lost her cool. And there was crazy stuff happening. I cannot tell you what was going on in the background. I mean, we're shooting in 18 days 
in Egypt. There's a really yeah, funny... Yeah, just like, tell us what was happening. <laughs> just like everything you can imagine. I mean, literally everything you can imagine. They also love to smoke. So it's like, oh, guys, we have... Um, we have uh, two minutes to get this shot before the sun and suddenly even the AD is rolling up, rolling like a cigarette. And you're like, guys, uh, we, we need to take this shot. They're like, oh, don't know, it's not like you're working with like a New York film crew. You're working like with like, you know, a more chill. And they're, they were brilliant. They did it. Technically, they're brilliant. It's just they have a different way of working. They didn't understand why we were always so stressed about making the day. They're like, it's going to be fine. And they're like they're rolling. And it wasn't even they got out like a, a cigarette. It was like rolling them up, you know. It was like you had to watch them roll up the cigarettes. You're like, <laughs> the I like am losing like, light. Oh, my God. Slow motion. Like, <laughs> Yeah. And you're like, I am losing light. I am so glad I don't smoke anymore. You know, like it's just this whole thing. And then it would, and it, the best part was that like I, I mean, they were the best crew ever. But just to tell you that funny thing, I'd be like breast, I'd be nursing my baby, my three-month-old. And then people would be smoking around me. It's very 70s. And I'd be like, guys, like, I'm nursing. Can you guys just smoke, like, down, you know, down the, like, because it wasn't just one cigarette. It was like, literally, you were in a bar, you know, in like, in, in like, you know, 10 years, whatever, 15 years ago. So um, those, those were funny things. Like, I think culturally, sometimes I had to just, like, not be so New York, because you know, obviously I'm, I, I, I'm English, but, and, and Arab and Bosnia, whatever. But, you know, I am a New Yorker. I was there for 12 years and I learned how to make films in New York. So I'm very like, you know, very new. I just have that energy when I'm working. And I mean, you put that energy in Egypt where it's famous that like you can get everything done in Egypt, but you just have to kind of like, it's like, you just, yeah. it's a different way. And it was such a good lesson for me and Andrea and Zalmira because half the time we just start laughing because we're like, I mean, what's going on now? And then it's realized that we're actually the ones probably, I don't know about Andrea, but like me and Zell were the ones that probably had the problem. And it was like, not really the problem, it's just that we looked at it a completely different way, you know? Yeah. I mean, look, to be fair, the dolly, the, the dolly, tra you know, they put down the track like in, in like sometimes like 20 minutes. I mean, in New York, you would wait, or London, you would wait like four hours, five hours. You know, the guys were oh, just yeah. like fast and good and Technically, the ACs were all phenomenal. It was really good technical crew, but just it was like a different cultural thing, you know. Because I, you know, because I speak Arabic and everything, I thought like, yeah, I got this covered, you know. But I don't because I, I've never made a film there, you know, and I, and I, um, I don't understand the ins and outs. So it was, it was really funny that we were dealing with that within the eighteen days. You know. Oh yeah. Uh, we're gonna take another quick break. When we come back, we're gonna talk a lot more Luxor and uh, and the passenger. We'll be right back. Dead Pilot Society brings you exclusive readings of comedy pilots that were never made, featuring actors like Patton Oswalt. So the vampire from the future sleeps in the dude's studio during the day, and they hunt monsters at night. It's Blade meets the odd couple. Adam Scott and Jane Levy. Come on, Corey. She's too serious, too businessy. She doesn't know the hokey pokey. Well, she'll learn what it's all about. <laughs> Busy Phillips and Dave Keckner. Baby, this is family. My Uncle Tell, who showed his wiener to Cinderella at Disneyland, is family. Do you want him staying with us? He did stay with us for three months. And he was a delight. <laughs> a new pilot every month, only on Dead Pilot Society for Maximum Fun. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm joined today by Zena Dora, and we are talking about The Passenger. Um, so 
Zaina, I don't know how you feel about this. I feel like I have a sense of how you do because of how your movies have um, played out the the plots of them. But Peplo was talking about when he was concocting the story, this thing that he was feeling so many coincidences in his daily life. He was feeling coincidences everywhere. And he was just like, they happen. But are they really coincidences? Like, what are they? And he he was just putting them in one after another into this film. He said, quote, none of this story would happen at all if it weren't for the similarities between these two people, for instance. This is like the... Um uh, you know, the fact that these two men look alike. There's a theme of coincidences that shows up a lot in the story. I was interested in, in them to the point. I wondered whether, is there such a thing? End quote. Um, and I think that when it comes to screenwriting, filmmaking, there is sometimes a sense, you know, that people will be like, this is a coincidence. I, you know, like have a reason for this, more reasons for things. But I do like the kind of school of filmmaking that's just like, well, things happen. Like, things are very strange. Like you're not sure who you're going to run into. You're not sure what thing from your past is going to happen. Um, but I appreciate that kind of willingness to to say that like a woman that he saw in London will show up a few days later in Spain. I love that because that's totally, then you'd get married. That would be the story, you know? You'd be like, mm -hmm. oh, I saw her in London across the, you know, on sitting on the bench and then we were in you know in Barcelona on this Gaudi thing and I was running away from this guy and there she was I mean how many coincidences when I met my husband the amount of coincidences that I would almost say plagued as a joke the first two months of us being like meeting it was like someone else was trying to get us to get I mean it, it wasn't it, it was inhumanly possible that we'd be in so many different countries at the same time when I've never even ever traveled that much in my life in yeah. so dramatically and he was in every single the same way it was just some of these things sometimes just happen and I think that um what you're talking about is this kind of very annoying thing that's happened to film where there are a lot of people that are like that there are a lot of people that sort of I call them the dampness. They come along they, and they sort of say, you know, in these development meetings, well, I don't know if this would happen. And this seems like a bit too, I'm like, like, what are you talking like, about? Like, it can happen if, the, if, if, if it's right for the story, it can happen, you know? And, um, and that's why I love this movie as well, because it really shows that kind of internationalism that I'm talking about from the 70s of those days, you know, where you didn't have phones how was he going to find her there? He just did. I mean, it's just like a classic journalist kind of story, you know, that he'd mm -hmm. be here, then she'd be there. And she's a she's an architecture student. So she's gone there. Now she's here. It just makes total sense. In the summer, I, I yeah, I, 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 I long for more films that take those risks, which aren't even a risk because that's actually how we live. That's the irony, you know. I think that there's um, there's a sense, you know, when we when we talk about kind of you know Hollywood development of just you know people trying to squash a, a a thing like a coincidence, what what might be real life, you know, because they they want it to be very tame, they want it to be quote believable, and I I'm just like I. I believe in um, a filmmaker who can make things believable, you know, like that. I don't really care um, what happens as long as it fits the story and it, it's um, and it's brought out in an in a organic way that that means something to it. Um, well, that's also something, too, of um, another technique that Mark 
Peplo was talking about that he was using to um, to write this is he was really fascinated by strangers and the idea that when you write a stranger into a story, you automatically can move the story very quickly forward because we are often more open with strangers than we are with people that we know. Um, and, and I love that technique of just like throwing this person in there and being like, okay, here's how we move the story forward about 10 times faster. And then we can get started on a lot of other things. Yeah. I, I love that bit when they're in that, um, in Barcelona and he's sitting on the bench and there's that old man. My name is Robertson. I've been waiting for someone who hasn't arrived. <laughs> Niños. I've seen so many of them grow up. Other people look at the children and they all imagine a new world. But me, when I watch them, I just see the same old tragedy. To have that within the wider context of the story about time passing and children just really grounded it in, not grounded it, it gave it another level so that it was a, it was an even bigger world. So what's amazing in this film is that you you just have one guy in a small conversation, which is literally two minutes, and some shots of some kids, and he's sitting on a bench, and mm-hmm. suddenly you've added a whole other aspect to the story from this tiny moment. And and I, in my first film, I really fought to have these moments because they're the first thing that they try and get rid of when they're like in the script. Oh, you don't need that. That's like another actor you have to pay and another. Yeah, but you yeah. know, your your film was set in New York. Mm. I would think it would be weird if there weren't something like that. I think there were you know, 101 like you... speaking parts in my first movie, <laughs> and everyone's like, "Dana, you're really messing up." I'm like, "No, this is New York. The lady with the like weird eye. Like, I mean, this is this was living in New York. Everywhere you go, there's like these characters that are so full of life and like amazing. And everywhere you go, someone's trying to marry you, kill you. I don't know what. Like, it's just like this constant thing." I, I want to talk about, go even further, though, into the kind of journalistic side of Antonioni in this film, because I think that there's one thing that always shocks me every single time it comes up, and that is the kind of dull reality of the one very, very horrific moment that we do see completely on camera. Um, and that is the documentary footage that's that's dropped inside. Um and uh, Jack Nicholson said, quote, this is actual documentary footage. Michelangelo called me in one day and said, I've got a lot of difficult film to look at here, but I want the execution to be real. So this is a selection of a group of executions he'd gotten from documentary sources. The footage looked like the ropes wouldn't hold the man, but nonetheless, this is reality. I don't see the blood caps exploding on his shirt, but I can tell you the man is dead. This being real, you can see why Antonioni doesn't believe in all the pyrotechnic things we use in movies we call entertainment end quote. I thought that was a really lovely way to put it of just like, it is, it is dull and horrific. And uh, I, it's like, it's very blunt. Um, so I think anytime I've been in a, whenever I've had a real gun, or whenever I've been in a situation that's been dangerous, it always seems fake because there's not, none of the like pyrotechnics that we grew up with, like thinking that you yeah. would have. It's like literally like a firecracker when a gun goes off or a, it's like these, it's like a very, it's an act of violence. It's just so bizarre because it doesn't have that, those theatrics that we expect it to have, you know? And then you're yeah. left with this, with this trauma because 
you then just can walk away. Or you know, if you're not the one shot, you can walk away or your life continues. And that's what I'm really interested, actually. It's really interesting you brought that up. Um, because in Luxor, she's just come from a war zone. But what's she going to do? She's still got to get up. She's still got to live. She's seen all this stuff, which is very much like that documentary footage, you know. And the stories mm -hmm. I heard, my God, the stories I heard from the nurses, I went into the research on this in this medicine from in this Doctors Without Borders clinic on the Jordanian-Syrian border on the Jordanian side. Um, that alone was super surreal because just to find that clinic, I had to drive an hour, I think an hour and a half from Amman. And I in Amman, they don't have like um they don't really have addresses on Google Maps. You normally just choose like a big hotel or a big like mall or something big that you know and there's like a big hotel yeah. near my parents which is super fancy and I put in the name of the fancy hotel it was actually the Four Seasons and then I put the name of the like the the town on the Syrian border where the where the uh, clinic was and that was my Google map route okay can you imagine how yeah. that like does your head in you know and it's yeah. like it's just it was like it's just so weird that like an hour and 20 minutes or whatever it is I can't remember that away and so Anyway, the point is that that I'm very interested by um, by this these juxtapositions of daily life, how violence is violent almost in its silence. So, like the result is horrific. The guy is dead, but you don't you don't you don't all you see is that he's like he's flopped, you know, a little, you know, mm -hmm. and that's it. And and she, in her mind, has all these images of people who have died, and the, and the nurses in this place and Ramtha. They um, told me in Arabic, not the doctors, the, the nurses said to me, we really want to tell you these stories. Now, all these horrific Sophie's Choice stories about this woman who um, there was a bombing in, in Dara'a, which is on the other side of Ramtha, which is a Syrian, was very, it was badly bombarded. And this woman had two children that were injured and she was injured and she had to leave one of the children to die because he was too injured to carry and she was injured and she knew she could maybe save the other one. So she took one child and left one to die. I cannot tell you how that story has haunted me ever since. And this is going on in Hannah's mind. And yet she's in Luxor in this like hotel trying to grapple also with her past. And that's how we live. This is mm -hmm. like, like, you know, Jack Nicholson's character, you know, he's a journalist. He's seen a lot of stuff. He's still falling, you know, he's still having an affair with Maria Schneider, but it's like mm -hmm. the stuff is still, you, you continue. Whereas like in a film which isn't as sophisticated, perhaps you would be much more like, you'd have like a crying scene and then like, uh, you know, you'd have like, you'd see the shot, then you'd see like a direct emotional reaction from the actor and then oh, you yeah. would do something cheesy afterwards, you know? Whereas it's more like these these acts of violence slowly build up and drive us insane, you know? And, and even when you see the gun, like when he pulls the gun it, out of... Yeah, it's um, a toy gun! Like, it's a, it's like a, there's like a wide, um, there's just, there's just no angle on it. There's no like, this is Chekhov's gun. No. You know what I mean? Like this is, this is, um, it's a very different way of exploring violence that is just like the So it doesn't the seem real. It, it seems like it's like, a, it's a mundane and it's like, that's the yeah. thing. It's the, it's the mundane nature of violence. I mean, that, does that even make sense? I, I don't know. It's the, it's the quiet nature of violence that is yeah. so violent, you know? Um, yes. And that's that's what I was trying to also capture in the film with what she 
was she was carrying with her. And, you know, I wish I could have done sophisticated um, point of view flashbacks. And I had some in the script, but with the money that we had and the, we always laughed that the, the um, wig situation in Egypt, because you'd want them to look younger with different hair and stuff. Like yeah. it's just the wig, the wig situation. situation was so bad and we just didn't have time. And I thought they'd got me the wigs they hadn't. And there was no way we could get them from London in time. So we were just like, let's just forget them. We can make this without them. It's just, it was, it would have been a nice moment, but it wouldn't have given them that much. It would just, there were just two moments of them talking when they were younger, you know, and that was it. And perhaps yeah. it would have been a bit more cheesy. I like the fact that we were really on her and feeling her and him as opposed to like being given little moments of the past because yeah. the past there's, is there's... so present. <laughs> but like part of me feels like the passenger in your movie are like they're almost like final destination movies you know that horror franchise where just like you escaped death but death is coming for you and that's uh, <laughs> uh, i want to thank you so much for uh coming on the show and talking about the passenger and your movie luxor and can you tell people how people can see your movie it comes out on december 4th and uh, you can watch it on um, VOD. Wonderful. Please check it out. Um, and uh, thank you again so much for coming on the oh, show. Oh, thank you for the amazing questions. I'm so excited by our conversation. It was really nice. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Switchblade Sisters. If you would like to tell us what you think of the show, you can tweet at us at SwitchbladePod or email us at SwitchbladeSisters at MaximumFun.org. And please check out our Facebook group too. That's Facebook.com slash groups slash SwitchbladeSisters. Our producer is Casey O'Brien. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher, and this is a production of MaximumFun.org. Everyone thought I was dead. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.